So the question that I want to begin to answer today is, what is the purpose of power? What is the purpose of power? We have begun a series last week on the book of Mark, walking through the book line by line, verse by verse, seeing what God is saying to us. And we we settled on a theme for this first part of the book of Mark that the writer, John Mark, Mark, is trying to make the case that God is more than a man. We saw last week that he had power and dominion over spiritual forces. We saw that there was something unusual about him when he was baptized, the heavens tore open, God's voice was heard, and the spirit settled down on a dove. And so we began to see quickly that last week, Mark chapter 1, begins immediately declaring that Jesus is something more than a man, and he walked in great power. So the question today that I want to pick up as we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45 is what is the purpose of that power? Why does Jesus come with all power in his hands? What is he doing with that? And how can that help us live our lives today? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to begin in verses 21 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. If you do not have a Bible, simply lift your hand up and one of our ushers will bring you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just simply lift your hand up and one of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, that is yours to take. Um, And if you did bring a Bible um, and just forgot yours, please leave ours in the seat so that we can use it for someone else. So if 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 you don't have a Bible, just throw your hand up. One of our ushers will help you. There's a man by the name of Frederick Nietzsche who has lots to say about this topic of power. Um, Some of you may know Frederick. He was a German philosopher, writer, scholar, um, born in Germany in 1844. Um, He's actually a guy that we are all pretty familiar with some of his words or at least some of his ideas. Um, He's incredibly quoted even today. Some of you may have heard the the old adage, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. How many people have heard that? (laughs) He actually wrote those words in 1888 in his book, Twilight of the Idols. Um, He repeated again several of the times. He's the one that that came up with that phrase, that adversity strengthens the man. And he was all about the man. He was anti-God, anti-Christianity as he understood it. And he was so anti-Christianity that one of the last books he wrote before his death in 1900 was a book called The Antichrist. The Antichrist. And he wrote this in direct opposition to Christianity. He's going to make his case against Christianity in his book, The Antichrist. And since we're talking about power, he provided what I think is a untrue but still helpful understanding of how the world sees power. And he says, it'll be on the screen. He says, what is good? All that heightens the feeling of power in man... The will to power, power itself. What is bad? All that is born of weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power is growing, that resistance is overcome. See, Frederick Nietzsche said something more eloquently that many of us still believe intrinsically, especially those who are apart from Christ, that happiness is achieved through exerting our will over others. Happiness is achieved through me getting all the power that I feel like I rightly deserve to determine the course of my own life. We use this power to benefit self. 
And anything that we do outside of Christ, even good things for other people, are really for our own benefit. Maybe you have heard this, that the world says that you should forgive others because being unforgiving is toxic to you. And so free yourself by forgiving someone else. You've heard that before? So why should you forgive someone, according to the world's definition? For you. Why should you serve others? Because the world tells you, oh, it's good to serve others because it reminds you to be grateful of how much you have been given to serve the less fortunate. We are kind to others so that we can have kindness returned to us in sort of a, a karma cycle. If we do good, we get good. And so we begin to see the world's mentality is that you are at the center of the universe. Everything that you do should benefit you, including power. If you have economic power, if you've got political power, if you've got some decision-making authority, at the end of the day, you've got to do what's best for you. And I want to make the case today through the scripture that Jesus gives us another model of how we should use that which he has given us by how he lives his own life. And Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45, we're going to break this section up, break this passage of scripture up into two sections. The first section is going to be power displayed. Once again, Mark is going to establish for us that Jesus is not just an ordinary man. You can call him what you want to do, but you can't call him ordinary. And the second part of that passage, we're going to see not just power displayed, but the purpose of power defined. Let me read this first half in verses 21 through 34. Read along with me silently as I read aloud. They went into Capernaum, and right away he, talking about Jesus, entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John, and Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pause there for just a moment. This is this first section of the passage where we're going to see that Mark is trying to make the case for Jesus' power is being on display. And there's really a couple of stories, two stories in particular are in these passages. The first one is Jesus goes to church, at church as they knew it at the time. He goes to the synagogue power on display. And so he goes to the synagogue to teach. And so in those times, people allowed guest teachers to come in and teach. So it was kind of a tradition that when someone, a new teacher would come, they say, hey, do you have a word? Come on and bring that word. Some of you from the old church, and they still do that. Amen. Uh, we don't do that here. Y'all anybody ever been to a church where you, when you're a visitor, you actually come up and tell your testimony? That's before all y'all time. That's fine. That's fine. 
Churches still do that. If you're a first-time visitor, like, we give you cake here, right? And the other church, like, they would actually come, tell you to come up and just, all right, give us a word, you know, first-time visitor. And you would preach a whole little sermon, and people would clap, and it would be a good time. That's before they got to the sermon. Amen? That's why church lasted so long. But it was good. So we don't do that here, but in those days, they would invite guest visitors and teachers to come and teach on the Sabbath. It was kind of a, an honor thing that's, hey, man, you're a teacher in another place. Why don't you come and teach us from the Scriptures? And so Jesus takes this opportunity and begins to teach. Now, what's the first thing? Once again, Mark is is proving the point that Jesus has power over all that we see and don't see. And so he begins with a story about the spiritual realm. Verse 23, there was a man with an unclean spirit in their synagogue. Jesus rebuked him, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him to the ground with a loud voice and what came out of him. Now, the book of Mark is fast-paced. It doesn't include a lot of dialogue, doesn't include a lot of details, because Mark really only has one point. Do you remember what that point was? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Y'all can talk back to me. It's okay. We're going to do this together. All right. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark's whole point is. I'm here to talk to you about Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm here to point to how Jesus has all power in his hands. So the details of the conversations are secondary to Mark. The most important thing for him is that you see that he commanded a demon and the demon obeyed. That's what he wants you to see. Now, but this this is an interesting story. Because look at verse 23. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. Pause. How long had that man been in the synagogue? It's kind of a side note, but I think it's an important, even convicting point here. One commentator on this passage says, it's impossible to know how many services that man had attended with an unclean spirit. And that just shook me. Because the man, most of the time when you see Jesus casting out a demon, the demon is acting like a demon. A man running around naked in a graveyard, a man foaming at the mouth, a man saying crazy things. This man's demon had him in church on Sunday. Oh, y'all don't want to help me. All right. This man demon had him sitting quietly and politely and doing service after service. And it wasn't a problem until what? Until Jesus showed up. And that struck me because we can do a lot of good things here on a Sunday morning, y'all. We can talk about a lot of good things here on a Sunday morning. Y'all heard this worship, y'all. Hey, y'all, we doing it. (laughs) These men and women can sing. These people can play. We can come here having a good time, but you can still leave bound by Satan if Jesus doesn't show up. If the presence and power of Jesus isn't here, then we have wasted your time. You know, sometimes we talk about, man, the service was dead today or service was dry today. And what we usually mean by that is the service was dead. We usually mean it was unenthusiastic. You know, we're always trying to pull people into worship. We're trying to get people to express worship through the lifting of hands and through the movement and just singing out of their voice. And so sometimes, like, man, church is kind of dead today. And we don't mean dead for real. We really just mean unenthusiastic. Because you can go to a church where you can run around with flags and tambourines and your hair fall out and everything crazy like that. But if you leave bound by the same spirit, your service was dead too. You just left tired. Come on now. I'm here to preach, y'all. You know what I'm saying? Ain't no point talking about it. We ain't going to talk about it. So you can leave tired and sweaty, but you can leave unchanged, still bound, if Jesus isn't central and put on display. Let me encourage you for a second. Some of y'all have been wondering why your family is going crazy right now. 
Some of y'all wondering why your finances are going crazy right now. As we look out into the news cycle, we see the church is having a credibility problem. Stories of abuse, stories of scandal, stories of aligning themselves with a political party that is anti-gospel. And we see the church being shaken up. You see your life being shaken up and you think it's something wrong. And so there have been lots of calls for revival. They had the National Day of Prayer just a few days ago, and one of those themes was a sense of revival of God, come and heal our land. But what if this is what revival looks like? Exposing sin, exposing those who are bound, exposing some of the things that we, even in the church, have been covering up for decades. Maybe this is what the presence of God really looks like, and don't we see that in the Bible? Remember the story of Isaiah? When he met God, what did he say? He said, well, I'm a man of unclean lips. He began to immediately see his inadequacy to stand before God. This is how you know that you have experienced the presence of God, church. Your sin has been exposed. Your pride has been crushed. Your dependency has been revealed. That's how you know. Whether, you, whether it's loud or quiet, that's how you know. Whether you're sweating or you're exactly the same, that's how you know. When Jesus shows up, sin is exposed. And so this man sitting in a church service, Jesus didn't even call him out. The very fact that Jesus was there caused the demon to respond. And that's what's happening in some of your families right now. As you're starting to take this Christianity thing serious. A lot of folks here are starting to take this Christianity thing serious. They're starting to read their Bible on their own. They're starting to worship God outside of Sunday morning. They're starting to fellowship with the body of Christ, even sacrificially because you worked a long day and you're already tired, but you're still willing to invest in relationships with other people. And then you feel like your life is starting to crumble around the edges. Am I talking to anybody? The presence of God will expose brokenness. And that's why there's some pushback against the world. That's why there's such opposition when you try to live rightly because the first thing God's presence does is shows where, he needs, where he's needed the most. And that's what happens. Jesus shows up in power, casts out the demon, the demon obeys. Mark included this story so that we could clearly see that Christ has power over the spiritual realm. We see this again in verses 29 through 34. Jesus began to teach, and then people began to come to him. They heard about the story about the demon-possessed man. They say, hey, man, this guy's doing something different. Matter of fact, did did y'all catch what he said in verse 27? They were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. See, there have been plenty of people who have been eloquent before Jesus. There were plenty of people who could hype people up emotionally, but then Jesus' words came with his power. And that was different. And people began to hear about that, and soon people were driven to Jesus. Now, were they driven to Jesus for the right things? Maybe, maybe not. They heard about his power. They disregarded his message, maybe, but they heard about his power, and they wanted to be delivered, too. So Jesus healed Simon and Andrew's mother-in-law, verse 31. After she was healed, he took her by the hand and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. So Jesus goes from healing one person in verses 32 and following, he begins to heal many people. It's kind of a side note, kind of unrelated. Verse 31, y'all, that's my mom all day. Maybe that's y'all grandma. 
Like, I can imagine my mom, like, on her deathbed, Jesus comes and heals her. She's like, oh, oh, Jesus, that's you? Let me make you something to eat. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Immediately going to the kitchen. You hungry? You look hungry. Let me make you something to eat. (laughs) So, once again, Mark is including these things. So, we know this is real people, y'all. This isn't a mythical story. He's including these human details to show, man, these are real people. And just like your mom and my mom and your grandma and my grandma, the moment you healed, hey, man, what you need? I can't preach no Bible study, but I can cook you some food. Amen, we'll take it. Amen, we'll take it. So Jesus heals the one, their mother-in-law, and she begins to immediately serve them, which is a model we're going to come back to later. In verse 32, what happens? Once again, Jesus' renown becomes more and more famous. They say, man, this guy is out here healing people. And so what happens? Verse 32, when evening came and the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. Let me stop here for just a moment. Now, there's not a demon behind every doorknob, y'all. Sometimes you're sick because you didn't get enough sleep. Just put that out there. Sometimes you're sick because you're eating reckless, right? You need to eat some more vegetables, right? Sometimes you're sick because you're under demonic attack, Right? So those who are sick and demon-possessed were included in this. So there isn't a demon behind every door, but we do live in a world where there are angels and demons. Amen? And so they begin to bring those who were sick, some from just physical ailments living in ancient Near East times. Some were under attack by demonic activity, but their bodies were sick, and Jesus healed them. That was your part. All. Let's try it again. Jesus healed them. Y'all ain't going to play me up here now. Come on. Jesus healed them all. All who came were came to Jesus. Jesus healed them. Why? To prove that I have power over the body too. I cast out demons to show that I have power over the spiritual world. I heal bodies to show that I have power over the physical world. Mark is making the case that Jesus have a power over all creation, those things that are seen and those things that are unseen. And so... Verse 35 takes a little bit of a turn, though. Mark is going through much pains. If you've been paying attention, almost all the entirety of chapter 1 is Mark trying to prove to you that, G- that Jesus is God. Who else can heal the sick? Who else can cast out demons? Who else can do these things? Who else the skies opened for when they were baptized? Who else? So he's establishing that Jesus is king, but in verse 35, it almost feels like it's a slow motion part of the movie. You know, there's kind of this action sequence in Mark chapter 1, and all of a sudden Mark's going to just slow down and read with me verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, Jesus, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. That is why I have come. And here, in this transition, we begin to see the, pow- the purpose of power defined by Jesus. What's the point of all these miracles, y'all? If God heals your body, do you go to heaven? No. Nope. If God casts out a demon, are you not righteous before a holy God? No. So why is he doing this, y'all? We begin to see that although he is king, he's a compassionate king. And you begin to hear it a little bit. This is why I have come. They said, hey, Jesus, they're hearing about your healings. Everybody wants to come to you and get healed. He's like, I hear that and I love them, but there's people who need me. 
that I've got to go to as well. And that is why I have come. I have come to deliver people. And to prove this point, look further down. It becomes even more clear. Verse 39. He went to all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What does verse 41 say? Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. There's a study that looked at Jesus' words and his actions and they tried to associate an emotion with everything that Jesus did and Jesus said. The New Testament scholars did this. So they looked at, you know, sometimes he was angry, sometimes he was sad, sometimes he was frustrated. We begin to see the, the range of emotions as any person would. Remember Hebrews, we have a perfect high priest who's been tempted like we are and yet did not sin. And so Jesus faced the same emotional temptations as we do because he was a man. But they found that, you know, the overwhelming emotion associated with Jesus' words and actions was compassion. More often than not, the motivating factor for what Jesus said and what Jesus did was compassion. And if we're honest, if we, if we think critically, what else could be the motivation? Jesus wasn't like us, who do good things to, to angle ourselves to be seen as doing good things, to climb a social ladder, to angle for some promotion. Jesus needed nothing from us. And yet he gave us everything. His love for us and his pity on us in our broken, sinful state was why Jesus did what he did. That is why in the New Testament you're going to see this constant pairing of Jesus' preaching and miracles. Preaching and casting out demons. Preaching and healing. Hope proclaimed. Power displayed. Over and over and over you get to see that pattern. But we said earlier that healing doesn't save. Having a demon cast out didn't save. And it seems, remember Mark chapter 1, verse 15? It says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says my primary purpose is to save souls. But praise God, we have a Messiah who can multitask. Because not only did Jesus come to free us from the penalty of sin, but he came to free us from the power of sin. Let me separate those things out for you. That may be new language for some. The penalty of sin is death. Romans 6.23 makes this clear that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sin leads to death, no matter how harmless you think it is, no matter how much you think it doesn't affect or hurt anybody else, sin always leads to death. And the only way out is through Jesus. That's the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is death. But there's also in the Bible this thing called the power of sin. And that power of sin is that that power that is still lurking in our lives, lurking in our families, lurking in the ways that we think. Let me prove it to you in Scripture, Romans chapter 7, verse 22. Paul talking. 
And he says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Does this hit anybody? I love God. I go to church. I read my Bible, but there is something else in me that is pulling me away from the things that I love. He goes on to say, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. So when the reason God is healing and delivering and casting out demons is to show that he has power over the penalty of sin and the power of sin itself. And so in this room, it's probably filled with people who love Jesus. Amen? Make me over, Lord, tears streaming down, worshiping, reading the Bible, serving, giving, doing all the things that Christ's love calls us to do. And we want to do these things because of all that Christ has done for us. But if we're honest, there is still a power of sin that is at work in our lives that we feel enslaved to. We are saved by grace. If we die today, we're going to be with the Lord. Amen. But there's something in our lives that keeps dragging us down. There's a, there's a war that we're waging in our affections. There's a power of sin that still has a hold on us. For some of us, maybe it's the way that you value and idolize money. Jesus Christ has your heart, but the bank account, that's mine. Maybe for some of us, it's a pattern of bad relationships. What we're looking for in, another, in a person isn't what God wants for us, and we keep choosing what we want, and it keeps ending in destruction. For some of us, it's our social life, our recreation, the way we relax, the way we unwind is no different than any other unbeliever would. Maybe it's an addiction to alcohol, coffee, or other substances. Maybe the power at sin at work in your life is same-sex attraction, gender issues. You believe that God got it wrong, and you need to make it right. Maybe it's unforgiveness and anger. You don't think you can ever forgive that person. You don't think you'll ever stop being angry. And you love Jesus. You love his word. But this thing has a hold on your life, and you don't think you can ever Let it go. Saints, I'm here to tell you today that Jesus Christ paid the penalty of sin, and that is why we rejoice, and that is why we sing, and that is why we gather, is our eternity is secured, but God cares more about what comes after. He cares about you now. He cares about how you live your life now. He cared about the people who were sick, and he healed them, didn't save their souls, didn't forgive them of their sin. They still had to make that choice, but God, he saw compassion for the man who had leprosy. He says, I don't want you to suffer. John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me, Jesus speaking, you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. But being courageous, I have conquered the world. And that's what Mark is saying right here, that Jesus has conquered the world. 
the body of death that you're struggling with, that sin that you don't think you can let go, that pattern of thinking and behavior that's always been there, Jesus died for that too. Jesus died to free you from that too. And here's what I'm not saying, church. I'm not saying that we can be perfect. Everyone is going to take sin to death, to the grave. Amen. We're not, perfection is what we shoot for, although the Bible is clear that it's not possible in this life. So I'm not talking about a, a state of sinlessness. I'm not saying that you won't struggle with sin. I'm saying that you don't have to struggle with the same sin forever. Sometimes that's my prayer, y'all, if I'm honest. God, give me, let me struggle with another sin. I'm tired of asking forgiveness for this thing. I'm tired of praying for the same thing. I know I'm going to struggle with something, God, but free me from this. And God, we don't have a Messiah who does not care. Well, you're saved, you're going to heaven, you just figure life out. We don't have a Messiah who doesn't look and is not grieved and is moved with compassion, the scripture says. Not to save that man's soul, but to free him from suffering. And Jesus can do both. The primary message of the church is repent and believe. But we can love people too, y'all. We can feed people. We can clothe people. We can advocate for justice. We can stand up for the immigrant and the foreigner and the widow and the single mother and the poor without compromising our mission. Jesus can do both and called us to do the same. So what does Jesus do with his power? Jesus is truly a compassionate king. He has power over the spiritual realm, casting out demons. He has power over the physical realm, healing our bodies. And what does Jesus do with that power? He doesn't build a castle, dig a moat, and raise up a flag. No, he comes to deliver and rescue us. And time and time again, Jesus' preaching is paired with Jesus' power. Time and time again, Jesus' preaching is paired with Jesus' power. He preached an eternal hope and provided present relief from suffering and church, so should we. So should we. I said that there is one great aim and one associated goal of the book of Mark. The great aim of the book of Mark is to paint Jesus as more than we could ever think. More than a man, more than a savior, more than we could ever imagine. Jesus is bigger than that. The secondary aim of the book of Mark is what are you going to do about it? So Jesus is healing and redeeming and preaching truth and loving people. What do you think it means when he says, come and follow me? That's not a metaphor for do what you want to do, but come to church on Sundays. That's a metaphor for the things that you saw me do, you go do. And I will empower you to do by the Spirit of God. And so we especially Christians, we who have been freed from the penalty and power of sin, we should be the most gracious people on the planet. We should be the most loving and patient people on the planet. Why? Because we've experienced love and patience. We who have been the recipients of the power of Jesus, Jesus who had all power in his hands and yet used it for our good, how dare we hoard the benefits of our own power for ourselves? All of us have been given a measure of power, political power, economic power. All of us have some form of influence, some decision-making ability. So the question is, how do you use that power? 
When, you, when it's up to you, when you get to make the decision, how do you decide? Do you vote for the person who's just going to lower your taxes? Oh, that was too much. That was too, that was too close. Back it on up. Get off the front porch. All right. All right. I hear you. I hear you. What do we use our political power for? We have an election season coming up. Who are we going to vote for? The person who's going to benefit us the most? When we have extra money in our budget, when we, have, when we don't feel like we ever have extra money in our budget, what do we use it for? We have a hiring decision to make and an opportunity to, to, to benefit someone. How do we use what God has given us? Do we hoard it for ourselves? Or do we follow in the example of Jesus who, who was moved with compassion? It doesn't diminish the preaching of the gospel to love people, y'all. It doesn't diminish the power of the gospel to save souls if we care for people's lives. And matter of fact, it actually adds credibility to what we say. When we say God loves you and they can say, yeah, I can see that because you love me. So the purpose of power, y'all, the purpose of power is to be given away for the benefit of others. And Jesus modeled that. Spoiler alert, at the end of this book, Jesus is going to die. Some of y'all didn't see that coming, right? Jesus is going to die. Why? Because he's doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Then he's going to come back to life to go back to the Father to plead our case on our behalf because our words will never be enough. Jesus, who has been given all power and authority in this world, says, hey, I know what I'm going to use it for. I'm going to use it to save a people. The plan of the Father, accomplished by the Son, powered by the Holy Spirit, all to create a people for the glory of God and for the good of all those who would trust in him. So if you're here today, I want you to hear two things. One is repent and believe. But eternity starts now. Jesus Christ will free you from the penalty of sin because you can never pay that penalty. So Jesus paid it for your behalf. But he also freed you from the power. You don't have to struggle, Christian. You don't have to struggle with addiction. You don't have to struggle with lust. You don't have to struggle with identity issues. You don't have to struggle with these things. You can be free today. Now, let me say this. You have to want to be free, though. Sometimes those things are how we identify ourselves, if we're honest. We almost don't know what happens after we let that pain go. We haven't forgiven that person for so long that we can't imagine what our life looks like in forgiveness. We can't imagine what our life looks like free from this thing. Let me tell you, it's better. It's better. Walk in the power of Christ today unto salvation for eternity. Yes and amen. Today, walk in Christ's power freedom in your life now. Free from that thing that's been holding you back. Free from that thing that's been keeping you in bondage. Free today in Jesus because that's why he came. That's what he came to do. Save our souls and free our minds so that we can love others, glorify him, and build his church, build his kingdom until he comes back. And we go get to be with him forever. But until he comes back, we got work to do in our own lives and in this city. Would you pray with me, church? Father.